Last week we looked at Jesus praying after a large day of ministry, and he uh, told the disciples that he can't just keep staying here doing miracle working, he must go forward and tell other towns the good news. And so we, we saw last week that as we follow Jesus, we are called to be disciple makers and what it means to be disciple makers in this world. And the big lesson for us as a church plant is to get in our minds the understanding that we take the gospel to the world. We don't expect the world to come in and and find the gospel. We hope that, that, that people will come in, but the command of Jesus is for us to go to the next towns. And for many of us, the next towns are the neighborhoods and the workplaces that God has already organized our lives to go into each and every week. So we come back on Sunday to renew our hearts, and then we leave every Sunday to renew the places God has put us in, right? Well, this week, we have a a kind of an interruption to Jesus' uh, ministry, and we have this dramatic story of Jesus meeting a leper out in a desolate place. And what we're going to see today is uh, an understanding of the gospel that I think is very meaningful and very helpful to us in our world today. Because what we are going to see is this truth, that the gospel is for outsiders. The gospel is for outsiders. Now, when we say outsiders, what do we think of? Uh, we live in a world that is terrified of being on the outside. We all want a seat at the table. We all want to belong. We all want to be popular, to be included. A lot of the reasons that we respond to the different commercials that we watch on television is so that we won't be missing out, so that we will be fitting in. Because the whole idea of being an outsider brings up the fear of loneliness, the fear of isolation. Now, when we think of loneliness and and isolation, our world today, the United States, is what is is called in the middle of an epidemic of loneliness. In fact, on May 1st, the Surgeon General published a report declaring that the United States is suffering an epidemic of loneliness that the statistics are saying that in our world, our very modern, tech-filled world with every convenience and every comfort, that uh, only about 40% of our population feels like they're connected. Only about 40% of our population don't struggle with the feelings of loneliness and isolation, which means six out of every 10 people are struggling feeling like they don't fit in and are struggling with a pervasive sense of loneliness. And the most startling thing to find is that the younger populations among us are feeling the most disconnected. Loneliness is more acute for the younger in this country. And so people are struggling with loneliness Do you relate to this call of loneliness? Do you feel misfit? Do you feel disconnected? Do you feel isolated, unwelcome, 
These are synonyms for loneliness. Do you feel like if, if you don't do it, there's no one there to help you? Do you feel like there's nobody who's going to give you the phone call when you need help? That's loneliness. That's isolation. And so we are living in a culture that is feeling isolation and separation and, and disconnection. In fact, did I, uh, yeah, so I, I kind of read that quote, so we don't need to, <laughs> I don't need to read that quote, but that's, that's, that was in the, uh, the report. Um, in schools today, I know we have kids in the room, uh, being popular, that, that, that need to feel like you fit in, is driven by that fear of loneliness. Men, I, I, I can tell you, it seems like the older I've gotten, the harder it is to have connections with people. You know, after you leave school, you have your wife, who's wonderful. We all love our wife. But then just, just friendships, adult male friendships, very difficult to maintain, to develop. There's a lot of independence. If, you, if you've been dealing with change, every time you, you change a job or change a home or change anything about your life, all of a sudden you're lonely. And it's Mother's Day. There's a lot of loneliness that comes with being a mom. Being a mom means that you're constantly losing sleep, constantly uh, having to choose your kid over any, any social connection, and, and there's a lot of competition in being a mom that can make you feel lonely. I mean, the, 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 the fears of, am I a good mom, are crippling to lots of people because what a good mom is is constantly being presented as this and this and this, and if you're not that, you feel outside. But the good news for us today is to dwell on this point. Jesus takes away our separation. Jesus brings outsiders into his kingdom. So I really have two purposes that I want to accomplish in, in, our, in our message today. One is I want to show that Jesus is the answer to our loneliness and our isolation. And second, is that I want to challenge us at Renew to be a church that is welcoming to outsiders as Jesus was welcoming to outsiders. So, if we are going to be disciple makers, like we challenged ourselves last week, we need to be a church that reaches outsiders. The good news that Jesus welcomes outsiders needs to be something that is experienced when people experience Renew EPC. All right. How then does Jesus bring outsiders into his kingdom? How does he bring outsiders into this kingdom? As we go through the passage, we're going to see that Jesus brings outsiders into his kingdom by three gracious acts. Three gracious acts. So when we talk about a gracious act, we are saying that it is Jesus that takes the initiative. It is Jesus that does the work. We are brought into the kingdom by grace, by the gift and initiative of God. And so we are going to see that there are three gracious acts that are demonstrated to us in Jesus' interaction with this person who has leprosy that shows how Jesus brings outsiders into his kingdom. The first that we are going to see here is that Jesus reaches outsiders. The first gracious act, Jesus reaches outsiders. 
Now, we, we see here in verse 40 that Jesus is out in the wilderness. He's out in a desolate place. And we're told these kind of startling words. And a leper came to him. All right? So, so let's kind of set the scene. Jesus has, has just left Capernaum after doing all of this miracle working, and he is now crossing through this barren wasteland. And, and the, the land of Israel has lots of undeveloped areas, lots of rough and outskirty areas, and Jesus is out there in the middle of nowhere, in this desolate place. And all he has with him are his disciples who are following him. And as he is out there, all to himself... This man comes to him in great urgency, in great enthusiasm to meet Jesus. And it is evident that this man is a leper. He is a person uh, with a debilitating skin disease, right? And he comes to Jesus. Now, the thing is that lepers are commanded to stay as far away from people as possible. So the idea of being out in the middle of nowhere and seeing a leper barreling towards you, trying to get into your space, that's a pretty scary sight for the disciples. Being in the presence of a leper was dangerous, not just, as we will see, because of the health concern, but also because of a social concern. But here we have a leper coming after Jesus and the disciples. I mean, this is, this is, to put you in that frame of mind, this is that experience where you're at the street corner with your car, you're listening to your music, your windows are down, and then some really kind of mentally unstable person rushes up to your car and wants to engage you. You get really nervous, don't you? You're like, when's this light going to turn green? <laughs> I, 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 I want to move on. This is, this is that experience. This leper is coming and, 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 and coming right into their space. Now, the, 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 the situation, the reason this is so serious is because being a leper was a physically and socially ruinous condition. So a lot of times when we read the word leper, we, we, we associate it with the disease that we know of today as Hansen's disease or leprosy. But to be fair to the biblical text, uh, the, the condition of leprosy c- covered a multitude of skin diseases. So we don't exactly know that this person was suffering what we would call Hansen's disease, but he is at the same time definitely suffering from some sort of skin condition that was progressed. And the reason that we know it's progressed is because it was evident that this person was a leper from a distance. We also know it it has been long-term because he is way out in the wilderness. He is not uh, anywhere that that is close to civilization. He is far away, and he is evidently, visibly a leper. And so he is some sort of physical condition that is incurable and that is getting worse. But more than just the physical condition of leprosy, this man is also in a socially ruined condition. Because the condition of leprosy was something that made him unclean in the culture that he was living in. In the Jewish culture, to have a skin disease gave you the the, uh, religious condition of being unclean. 
which meant that you were a, a fear, a, a contamination to other people to make them unclean. And so the only place that you could be if you are unclean is outside of the camp, outside of fellowship, outside of all of these relationships. So he is a person who has a physical condition and a social condition that has banished him from society, banished him from culture, banished him from friendships. In fact, if you go to Leviticus chapter 13 and read some of the most riveting chapters of the whole Bible, two full chapters on skin diseases in the book of Leviticus, I I was a bit tongue-in-cheek there. They kill every annual reading plan. If you get into Leviticus, uh, these are are hard verses. But Leviticus 13, 45, and 46 describes the condition this man would be in. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So that is the scriptural condition that this man is in. He is outside of fellowship. He lives alone. His condition has all the evidence of being long-term and hopeless. One of the most uh, depressing things about leprosy was that it was incurable. The, 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 The cure rate of leprosy was so rare in the experience of people in, in the biblical times that they basically saw someone with leprosy as a dead man walking because there were no stories of a man with leprosy being made well. The only stories where anybody with leprosy is made well in the Old Testament was by a miracle. And so we have here a a person who is a leper, who is hopelessly long-term outside of the culture, separated from community. Now, are we lepers? No, we don't struggle with, with leprosy. But But I do think we are dealing with a culture that is so full of separation and division that there is a certain aspect of the condition of the leper that that maybe we need to recognize is starting to develop. And so uh, there's there's a a game on the Price is Right. Uh, You guys like the Price is Right? 10 10 a.m. every day you got to see Price is Right was a day you weren't going to school, so it was great. But 10 a.m., Price is Right, there's this wonderful game called Plinko. You guys know the Plinko game on The Price is Right? So the way it worked was you had all these little pucks, and you, you dropped them at the top of the board, and all these little pins pushed your puck back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until it got down to the bottom, and your puck would land in uh, whatever prize you would get. So you could end up with 1,000, you could end up with 100, you could end up with zero, but it was just all of these pins knocking your puck down into these boxes. And as I uh, think about that, I think I have personally lived as a Plinko puck over the last five years. Maybe, maybe you can relate. I feel like ever since COVID, maybe a little bit before that, I have been a puck 
dropped through an unforgiving maze of pins that are knocking me this way and that way. Maybe one pin is, are you going to get vaccinated? Maybe one pin is, are you going to socially isolate? One pin is, are you going to wear a mask? One pin is, how are you going to respond to this social issue? And another pin is, who are you going to vote for? And another pin is, how can you vote for that person? And another pin is, what are you going to uh, do with, with uh, this issue and that issue? And how are you going to feel about uh, what happened in the news yesterday? And there are just these pins, right? And we are living, falling, <laughs> I mean, nobody feels uplifted right now. We have, we have lived with this feeling of falling, bashing into pin after pin after pin until we land ourselves in some box at the very bottom of the board. And the box that we're in, we're, we're happy with the box, right? We got the right box. But you look at all of the other people that you said, you know, we, we're close, we're friends, we're, we're like-minded, and you realize that the pins took them 12 boxes in the other direction. And so all of a sudden, people just three or four years ago that you said, you know what, we're friends, we're community, we're connected. We now look at them as being in a box that doesn't make any sense to us anymore. And they look at us as in a box that doesn't make sense to us anymore. And so we are all living in these little silos, these little boxes, and they're separated. We, 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 we feel incapable of making sense of somebody three boxes over. Right? And we don't feel like we can move. And they don't feel like they can move. And why, why do we feel like we're in boxes? Because every single one of the pins that we have knocked into has been published on social media or in our email or whatever and algorithms, honestly, algorithms are working to make sure everything you think is, is given a confirmation bias so that you only hear the people that agree with you. And all you see of other people are the most obnoxious and the most un intolerable viewpoints. So we, are, we have been dropped and we're bruised into boxes. That's modern culture. We are dropped into Plinko boxes, and we are divided, and we are angry, and we feel very, very alone. Like we are the only people in the world that are thinking correctly, right? That's, that's the world we're living in. So let me just say this. We in our hearts, because of the, the Plinko board that we have all gone through, are looking very negatively at almost everybody that is different than us. Almost like they're lepers. I mean, there, there's no middle ground in so many discussions anymore. There's no moderation. Well, that means that the rest of the world, everybody else in different boxes from you, they look at you like a leper. Like somebody just to stay away from. That person's ideas, that person's viewpoint, that person's influence is unclean. And so we are in a situation, I think socially, whether we recognize it or not, where we are siloed into prison cells from one another. And we're disconnected. And we don't even want to be connected because we fundamentally don't like those people anymore. Right? So I think that the condition that we see here in the leper is something that we have, in a way, recreated socially. We are being broken apart 
news cycle by news cycle. And there's no fix in sight. There's nobody that's going to come into the, into the scene and break apart these Plinko boxes. That's, that's where we are. So we have, I think, more connection to this leper than we might recognize. And so he is wandering in a desolate place. He is wandering in his Plinko box way far away. And he is probably at this point just waiting to die. He he has gone to the priest week after week, reaffirmed he is unclean, so he is out in a desolate place. The only thing he can hope for is his life be taken from him. And yet, he's in the middle of nowhere, waiting to die, trying to stay away from everybody, and yet, he runs into Jesus. He runs into Jesus. Now, how how does that happen? Well, verse 40 says, this leper came to him, right? The leper came to him. Okay, so there's, there, it appears at one level that the leper came to Jesus. Except, how could this leper have come to Jesus? All, the only place that the leper can be is in the desolate place. The only reason that the leper could come to Jesus is because Jesus was also in the desolate place. The leper found Jesus because because Jesus placed himself where the leper was. So here's something I want us to dwell upon as we think about Jesus reaching outside, as we think about Jesus reaching this leper, as we think about it in our context today. As we think about loneliness and isolation and our Plinko boxes, Listen, the brokenhearted are not alone because Jesus is near the brokenhearted. The socially isolated, the uh, lonely are not alone because Jesus is near the socially isolated and the alone. The prophecy that Jesus fulfills from Isaiah 61.1 says this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me, speaking of Jesus, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is a prophecy that Jesus fulfills, and this is a passage showing that this is what Jesus does. Now, how does Jesus bind up the brokenhearted? How does he proclaim liberty to the captives? How does he open the prison to those who are bound? By being near them. He goes to them. He is near the brokenhearted. He takes the news to the poor. He is where the the, the captives can hear him. The captives cannot come to him. He goes to the captives. This is the Savior's work. He reaches the outsiders. This is why Jesus is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. The good news of the gospel is that we do not have to find God because God has already, through Jesus, come and found us. 
I, I know that there is someone here today that needs to hear this loud and clear. You are never in a place where you are unable to cry out, Jesus, I need you. Because Jesus is always there. He is always near. And he always hears the cry of the brokenhearted. Jesus reaches outsiders. The second gracious act that we see in this passage is that Jesus receives outsiders. Jesus receives outsiders. So the man comes to Jesus, and he comes to him in faith. He says these words to Jesus, If you will, you can make me clean. I think that that is a beautiful picture of what faith God delights to see in us. To see in us the faith that comes with, If you will, you can make me clean. I think there are two marks of this of this faith that are on on display here. Faith that that is an example for all of us. First of all, this this statement is a faith that shows confidence toward Jesus. Complete confidence towards Jesus. The words, if you will. If you will, you can make me clean. Do you understand the, the, the... bursting size of confidence that 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 faith demonstrates. He has lived years being told there is nothing that can be done for you. There is no cure for this. There is no medicine. There is no way to be healed. Go outside. Stay outside. And yet this man says, you can. You can. You can take my leprosy from me. There is no story of a a human being being able to cure leprosy. Like I said, the only examples of leprosy ever being cured in the Old Testament were miracles. In fact, uh, um, Naaman, the the Syrian, when he comes to, to seek a cure, he brings a letter that says, can you send me to the man who can cure me of my leprosy? And the king, I think it's Ahab, he says, who am I? God that can raise the dead, I can't cure your leprosy. See, the whole idea of leprosy was so associated with an impossible task that it was equivalent to God raising the dead. It is only a God thing. And so we have this leper coming to Jesus saying, if you want to, you can do this. That statement shows complete confidence toward Jesus. But the second mark of faith that is so beautiful here is that it shows complete humility towards self. Because the man comes and he doesn't say, heal me. He doesn't say, clean me. He says, if you will. If you will. He comes to Jesus with his hands completely open. He comes seeking mercy. There's no leverage that this man brings. There's no entitlement that this man brings. There's no money that this man brings. All he does is hold his hands out and says, if you will, you can make me clean. And so this is a picture of faith, complete confidence 
in Jesus that he can save. And complete humility in ourself that we bring nothing. All we can do is receive God's grace. Now Jesus' response is so shocking. Look at verse 41. Let's, let's read verse 41 again. Do I have it on the screen? I, I need to pull it up on my... Uh, I need to turn a few pages. I was... 141 says this. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So this man comes in faith and then the shocking response is given to us by Jesus. So Jesus says, I will be clean. He answers the man's request with words. But words were not the only thing that Jesus used in this story. The most shocking thing that happens in this story is the words, he touched him. Jesus touched the leper. Jesus touched the leper. This man hasn't experienced human touch for years. This man has been defined as untouchable. No one would touch a leper. And Jesus, we know he has the power to just say the words. So his Touching was something he did for the leper. He touched him, not because he had to, but because the leper would so respond to the touch. Listen, this this touch lets us see inside of our Lord's heart. In touching the leper, Jesus recognizes and restores the dignity of this man. By touching this leper, Jesus is saying, you are not a leper. You are one that bears the image of God. And you have the dignity of my touch. You have the dignity of my hand upon you. Jesus declares, you are not your disease. You are the Imago Dei, the image bearer of God. That's the dignity that this touch restores in this man. And so I want everyone here, because I know that we all struggle with conditions and maladies and limitations. And sometimes those maladies are like the lepers. They become overwhelming. They become our box. But Jesus, in touching the leper, is telling all of us, you are not your condition. You are an an image bearer of God. That is who you are. That is the truest thing about you. You are God's image bearer. The second thing, though, that that Jesus' heart is revealed as he touches this man is it shows shows what's in Jesus' heart, which which is love. When Jesus touches him and says, I am willing, 
Those are words of compassion. And that is a touch of compassion. The words and the touch are saying, I love you. Leper, who has not been loved by anyone, I am willing, is I love you. Friends, do you believe that Jesus is willing? Do you believe that Jesus is willing to come into your situation, to lay his hand on your situation, to enter your plinko box and say, I am willing. I love you. Because that is what the leper testifies. If you have any question that Jesus is willing to love you and to care for you and to do for you what you need, all you have to do is to remember he's already died for you. Paul says it in Romans. If he has died for us, how will he not also give us all things? Now, don't mishear my words. How Jesus comes alongside you, how Jesus expresses his love, I can't tell you how that is going to look or what that is going to present itself as, but I can tell you by the promise that he has died and raised again, that he comes to say, I love you and I am willing to make you well, and he will one way or another. So what we have here with Jesus' touch is the dignity that he gives this man who had had his dignity stripped from him and who communicated compassion and love to someone who had not received compassion and love. This is what Jesus shows to the outsider. So if we are going to be a church that preaches Jesus, are we a church that will receive as Jesus receives? Are we a church that is going to welcome outsiders as Jesus welcomes outsiders? This is, I believe, the big challenge for the church today. We cannot be a Plinko box. We must be a church that breaks down Plinko boxes and says, Jesus receives outsiders. Our core value is that we are brokenhearted. When we say we are brokenhearted, we are seeking to, 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 to live as Jesus demonstrates in this passage. We are broken people, wholly known and wholly loved in the gospel, who welcome and serve everyone with humility, compassion, and generosity. That is one of our core values, that we would be brokenhearted. How can we make sure that we are brokenhearted? Here's a shocking statement made by Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. He spoke to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the scribes and all of those other folks. He said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Before who? 
before the teachers of the law and the clean Pharisees and the clean Sadducees and all of these people who who know their Bible and preach it, he says that prostitutes and tax collectors, the most outside of outsiders, are inside the kingdom. And they're in line ahead of you. What does this mean? It means that nobody is in the kingdom who did not start as an outsider. Only those in the kingdom are those who have come by the invitation of Jesus. Everybody starts as an outsider. And so if we are going to embrace being a broken-hearted church who welcomes outsiders, we have to recognize and live this truth. We will only receive outsiders so long as we remember we were outsiders too. We were outsiders too. What, what, what was your reason for out, being outside? What was my reason for being outside? They may not be the same, but they both had us outside. And the only way anyone comes inside is God's grace. We cannot use God's grace as a reason that we're better than anybody. Amen? But Jesus is not just all love in this passage. Jesus is not just all love in this passage. In fact, if you are using an NIV, you would look at verse 41 and you would see in in the place of uh, Jesus was moved with compassion, you would see the words, Jesus was indignant. You need to pull that back. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, leave it there. All right. Uh, If you have the NIV, you would see in place of uh, the, the words, Jesus moved with compassion, you would actually see the words, Jesus was indignant. What we have in verse 41 is a a bit of a question mark in the Greek as to what is the original word that Mark wrote. In in the majority of Greek manuscripts that we have, we have the Greek word for compassion. But in one or two Greek manuscripts, we have this very strange word that says that Jesus was full of anger. And so scholars and text critics are like, well, which one of these two is more likely the original. Because what we are dealing with when we deal with translation is we're dealing with all these different manuscripts and trying to figure out which one of these manuscripts is closest to the original. And so we have either compassion or we have anger. Now, it's not hard to see the passage with the word compassion. That that kind of already fits our theology, right? That's comfortable. Yeah, Jesus was full of compassion. It's much harder to understand why he would be angry, right? What, what, what would be angry to Jesus in this situation? But incidentally, it is for the very reason that it is so hard to explain why the word angry would be there in a manuscript, that that is pretty strong evidence that angry is probably the original word. Okay, there's kind of a rule in, in uh, text criticism that translators generally move from a harder reading to an easier reading. And so the word compassion, I don't know how it came into the, into the manuscripts, but the word compassion is probably done by some well-meaning scribe to soften the hard word, he was angry. There's some evidence to support this. 
Uh, one is the improbability, but the second is if you take the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke of this passage, they just skip the word entirely. If the word compassion was, one, was the original word, we would probably see compassion repeated. But since we don't see any word about the emotion, they just bypassed mentioning the word angry. So I am going to side with the harder reading, and I am going to suggest that probably verse 41 should have the words, Jesus was indignant. Now, why go to the trouble to bring up this question mark? Because I want you to recognize that Jesus is not all love in this passage. When we see the word Jesus was indignant in there, we need to ask the question, well, why? What would have possibly justified his being indignant? Clearly, he's not angry at the leper. He has love for the leper. We we have too much evidence in the text that he loves the leper. What would make him angry, though? What, what, What could possibly be angering Jesus in this passage? I think it's the disease. Jesus saw the the leprous condition of this man, and he became angry at what it has done to this man's life. This this condition of unclean has destroyed this life of this precious image-bearer of God. So what we have here, if the word anger is correct, is that we have Jesus expressing righteous indignation toward that which destroys the image of God. We have to recognize that love and hate actually belong together. If you truly love something, you hate whatever would destroy that. An example, if you love kids... You hate child abuse, right? You hate child abuse. It makes you angry. So if Jesus loves the image of God, if he loves his people, he hates with a righteous indignation everything that seeks to destroy that image shining forth. The dignity of that human being being destroyed makes Jesus angry. And so we have here an example of Jesus' anger towards that which destroys his very good creation. And there's a teaching lesson for us here. Jesus' mission is more than to say he loves you. His mission is to make us right. Jesus says, I love you. But he does not love whatever is in you, destroying your dignity, destroying your uh, relationship with God, destroying your health. He hates that. And so he has come to say he loves you, but he has also come to say, I am here to restore you. And so that is our third point. Not only does Jesus reach outsiders, not only does he receive outsiders, but third, we see that Jesus restores outsiders. So Jesus' touch does something else to this man. It makes a transfer. So in the Old Testament, to touch a leper meant that the uncleanness of that person transferred to the toucher. So do you you recognize that what Jesus allowed happen? When he put his hand on this man, 
He allowed the condition of the man's uncleanness to become his own. In touching this man, Jesus became ceremonially unclean. He let the uncleanness of the man become his own. But then also, the man is healed with that touch. So at the same time that the uncleanness goes onto Jesus, Jesus' perfect righteousness, his uh, heavenly cleanliness, immediately banishes the disease from the leper. Immediately the man was made clean, which is a remarkable thing to imagine. Picture it. This man was visibly marred and mocked and, 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 and pockmarked with skin and who knows how many deformities. And immediately, by the touch of Jesus' hand, everything impure, everything marked and marred was made perfect. The man was visibly clean, visibly free of this disease. So what we have here is that Jesus takes the uncleanness when he touches the man and gives the man through the same touch the righteousness that makes him clean. This is a powerful picture of what Jesus is doing for every single one of us when we come to him. Because what makes all of us unclean is sin. And Jesus, being righteous, has no sin. But for us to be set free from sin, our sin has to be taken away. And for us to stand clean in front of a heavenly Father in heaven, we have to have the righteousness of Jesus. There has to be an exchange. There has to be a touch. There has to be a place where Jesus takes all that makes us unworthy of God's face, and also gives us all the things that we need to stand before him. We need the touch that Jesus gave the leper, and in the gospel that is what we receive. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what, what, what happens to each and every one of us? Jesus touches us and lets all of the sin that is in our life, our sinful condition, he takes upon himself. He bore that on the cross. So that all the judgment that our sin deserved was paid. But even greater than that, when we put our faith in Jesus, all of his righteousness, all of his rightness before God is given to us so that we stand like the leper, no longer unclean, but clean. No longer a sinner in God's sight, but righteous. No longer cast to the outer darkness, but received into his blessed kingdom. That is what God does in Jesus on the cross.
Let's go ahead and move to the end of the passage, since I think we're ready to probably move to lunch here pretty soon. So Jesus reaches outsiders. Jesus receives outsiders. Jesus restores outsiders. The key question it all boils down to is how can we be restored from our separation? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 these words, The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Friends, we live in a world of loneliness. We live in a world of isolation. We live in a world of plinko boxes. How do we get out? How do the outsiders come in? The good news is we do not have to raise ourselves up to heaven. We do not have to put ourselves down in the grave. All we have to do is receive the word that Jesus has given us to save. And what is that word? That word is given to us in Romans 10 and 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. You see, the gospel that we preach reaches and receives and restores. The gospel that we preach is the gospel that Jesus has come to take away all that separates you from him. And if you want to be freed from your Plinko box, freed from your loneliness and your isolation, simply call out to Jesus and believe. He is willing. He is able to save. Amen.